0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies, and now in Revelation chapter 13, I'm going to do the first 10 verses of Revelation 13, which concern the sea beast, also known as the Roman Empire. Remember, there are two persecuting entities of the people of God in the book of Revelation. One is the apostate land of Israel. That wonderful kingdom of the Pharisees and Sadducees who murdered Jesus and who have murdered the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. And the other persecuting entity was the Roman Empire. So we're going to concentrate on the Roman Empire in these first ten verses of Revelation 13. Our context is this. The seventh angel is sounded, getting ready for the seven bold judgments to come. But there's a lot of stuff that happens between... The sixth and seventh trumpet, for example, in Revelation 12, we had Satan thrown down to earth. In Revelation 12, we had the woman representing the church escaping Jerusalem, crossing the Jordan River, going to Pella, as Satan tried to destroy the church by a bunch of water coming out of his mouth, but the ground opened up and soaked up the water, so the church was preserved in Pella. So that's where we are. We start with verse 1, Revelation 13, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now, the dragon, of course, is the great red dragon that had been chasing the woman to the wilderness in Revelation 12, and so some English translations have the dragon standing on the sand of the seashore, actually, at the end of chapter 12, not here at the beginning of chapter 13, doesn't matter, the dragon stands on the sand of the seashore, if you stand on the shores of Israel on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, if you take that position, which John had actually, he was in heaven watching this big battle between the devil and the woman. Now he's back on the seashore in the vision. If you are standing there and you look west across the Mediterranean Sea, past Cyprus, past Greece, past Rhodes and all those islands, and then you get to Italy where the Roman Empire was headquartered, and so, somewhere around there, around Italy, John a Beach coming out of the sea. Now, the sea is a very common metaphor, as I've mentioned in previous audios, a common symbol in both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the deep, the abyss, the abode of demons, the Gentile powers, as Chilton dramatically puts it, the energizing power of the Gentile nations. Now, to let you have a feel for that, I'm going to read you three scriptures, two of which are in Revelation and one's in Isaiah. Revelation 17.1, did one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, the seven chalices, came and spoke with me, come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who is seated on many waters. That's the famous whore of Babylon. Babylon, if you recall, had a bunch of canals running through it, and that's why Babylon is called a prostitute seated on many waters, and we'll see later in Revelation 17 that Babylon, the whore of Babylon, is apostate Israel riding on the back of the Roman Empire. Revelation, but anyway, many waters that refer, that shows the uh, it's the it's referring to Babylon, which of course is a, a Gentile nation. Revelation 17:15. He also said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And that just drives my point home. Revelation 17.15 explains, verse 1 in Revelation 17, that whore who was seated on many waters represents peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, which is the standard representation of the Gentile nations. And John, in Revelation 17.15, explicitly identifies those peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages with the waters that John saw in verse 1. Let me read Revelation 17.15 again. He also said to me, that's Jesus said to me, John, the waters you saw are people's multitudes, nations, and language. So they have water representing Gentile nations. Isaiah 57:20. but the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water turns up mire and muck. There's lots of other scriptures pointing to this, which I've gone over in a previous audio. I'm not going go to go do any more, give you any more of those. But the point is, is this beast coming out of the sea, whom I will call the sea beast, is representing the Gentile world. And we will see this even clearer as we go through some of the symbology here, because the sea beast had ten horns and seven heads. Well, this is a mirror image, first of all, of the red dragon. previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 3, we see this. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns. And on its heads were seven crowns. So the dragon, of course, was Satan. He had seven heads and ten horns. But now we're going to see this sea beast is going to be like the red dragon. They're both going to have ten horns and seven heads. This shows that the Roman Empire is identified with the devil. The devil is the animating force behind the Roman Empire. Now how do we know that the sea beast is the Roman Empire. Well, ten horns and seven heads. The ten horns is explicitly explained to us by John in Revelation 17:12. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So the ten horns are the governors of the ten imperial provinces. At the time of John, there were ten f w farrar in his book the early days of christianity eighteen eighty two page five thirty two identifies the ten provinces province number one italy province number two Achaea, which is present-day greece province number three asia on the western shores of anatolia Province number four, Syria, same as it is today. Province number five, Egypt, same as it is today. Province number six, Africa, which mainly, mainly North Africa, southern shore of the Mediterranean. Province number seven, Spain, same as it is today. Province number eight, Gaul, present-day France. Province number nine, Britain, present-day Britain, same as, as it is today. And province number ten, Germany, which was east of the Rhine and north of the Danube River, parts of present-day Germany. So there are your ten horns belonging to the Roman Empire. The sea beast also had seven heads, and that symbolism is also explicitly given to us by John, not merely once, but twice, in Revelation 17, verses verses 9 and 10. Let's start with verse 9 in Revelation 17. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Seven mountains are seven hills. Well, Wikipedia lists those seven hills. The famous seven hills of Rome... The Palatine, the Aventine, the Capitoline, the Quirinal, the Viminal, the Esquiline, and the Celian. The modern city of Rome still has those seven, so, seven, seven the same seven hills, and they all have the same names. Actually, so this is easy, folks. This is talking the C V as Rome. Now I said that John identified those seven heads twice, because the seven heads had a double symbolism. The first were the seven hills on which Rome was built, and also, as John points out in the last part of Revelation 17:9. Verse 9 and verse 10, these seven heads also stand for seven particular emperors in Rome's early history. Here's what John says in Revelation 179 b through 10, they, referring to the seven heads, are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain only a little while. Now I'm going to go over that in great detail when I get to Revelation 17, but here's a short summary The five kings have fallen. That would be the five emperors before Nero, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. The one is, that's Nero, the emperor, the Antichrist, 666 Antichrist, as we'll see when we get there. He's the one that's ruling now, who's referred to in the scripture as the man of sin, the Antichrist. The other, the seventh head, the other has not yet come. That refers to the short-lived, short-lived emperor that came right after Nero went down, namely Galba, whose reign lasted only a matter of months, from June 8th of 68 to January 15th of 69. He was the first emperor in the chaotic year of the four emperors, which was 69 AD, 1900 years before I graduated from high school. Things were turbulent in both millennia. So, this is easy. Ten horns, seven heads, that's Rome. So this CB stands for Rome. Now on his heads, John says in verse 1, Revelation 13, on his heads, on the sea beast's heads were blasphemous names. Now we've got to go to the Old Testament to get to what John is alluding to. This this sea beast was an evil parody of the biblical high priest. The biblical high priest wore the divine name on his forehead, but the Roman Empire wore blasphemous names on his head. Here's what Moses tells us in Exodus 28, 37, and 38. You are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it like the engraving of a seal. Holy to the Lord. That's colon. Holy to the Lord. Those are the words that were on the seal. The gold medallion. Fasten it to a cord of blue yarn so it can be placed on the turban. The medallion is to be on front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead so that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as... All their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead so that they may find acceptance with the Lord. So basically, on top of that turban of the high priest, there was a gold plate, a medallion, a badge, whatever you want to call it, and it had engraved on it, Holy to the Lord. And the sea beast was mocking that with blasphemous names on his head, on his heads, I should say, seven heads. We go now to verse 2 of Revelation 13. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Well, I've already mentioned that because the dragon had seven heads and ten horns, just like the sea beast had seven heads and ten horns, that shows that they're linked together. And John explicitly says that in verse 2. The dragon gave him his power. So the Roman Empire was animated and energized by the devil himself. The devil, the dragon gave him, the sea beast, the Roman Empire, his power and his throne and great authority. If you ever read a history of the Roman Empire? Those suckers were straight from the pit of hell. I don't know how you can put a nicer spin on it. They were full of hell. But now, of course, in this particular period, it was the time of Nero. I mean, the Roman Empire did straighten up a little bit at the, end of the, at the beginning of the 2nd century. Things were nice. But boy, at the time that John is writing, when Nero was in charge, things were not nice. The Roman Empire was the pit of hell. And it's, and the Roman Empire is is symbolized by this beast here in verse 2, Revelation 13. And the beast, that's the sea beast, which I saw was like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion. So all of the beasts that John mentions here are ferocious. They're vicious. They're dreadful. They're terrifying. they are four beasts. The sea beast was the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Now this ought, of course, remind us of the book of Daniel in which there were four beasts. I really, I, I tell people, if you want to learn eschatology, you need to start with Daniel before you do Revelation. You need to start with Olivet Discourse. Then you need to do Daniel, and then you need to do Revelation. But if you're familiar with Daniel, remember the four beasts. They're in reverse order here in, in John, but they're the same four beasts. The lion was Babylon, the bear on his side, in Daniel, that was the Medo-Persian Empire. The leopard was the... Kingdom of Alexander the Great and his four successor generals, the leopard with four horns, and then you had the monstrous beast without a name, the ferocious beast, I'll call it, didn't really have a name. Well, that's the same as the sea beast here. So you got the same beast in Daniel as we have in Revelation. And all of these beasts, of course, represented empires which were antichrist, blasphemous, opposing God, and all of the evil was concentrated right now in the sea beast. The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire contained all the characteristics of the other beasts. The Roman Empire, with its reigning Emperor Nero, was sunk in degrading, degenerate, bestial activities. Nero, of course, is the most famous. What did he do? He murdered numerous members of his own family. You should read a biography of Nero. Fascinating reading. He killed his own mother. He kicked his pregnant wife to death. He was a homosexual. He favored His favorite aphrodisiac was watching people undergoing horrifying tortures. He dressed up as a wild beast so he could rape female prisoners. He burnt Christians at the stake to light up his garden parties. That's where we get the term Roman candles from. He launched the first imperial persecution of Christians at the instigation of the Jews. That was after the great fire of Rome. Rome under Nero was the moral sewer of the world. And that's when John was writing this book. Now the three beasts that are mentioned in Daniel and also here in Revelation, they are characterized by certain features. For example, the leopard, which was Greece, Alexander the Great. A leopard is swift and ferocious. A bear is tenacious in dragging away of its prey, and a lion has a ravenous appetite for devouring. The bear being Medo-Persia, the lion being Babylon. And so all of those characteristics are exhibited in the sea beast. Swift, ferocious, tenacious in dragging away its prey, having a ravenous appetite for devouring. We go to Revelation chapter 13 verses 3 and 4. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth or the whole land, depending on how you translate gay there, and the whole earth or the whole land was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast. Now, once again, I'll point out verse 4, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. That big red dragon with the seven heads and the ten horns in heaven was the devil, and he gave authority to the beast, the sea beast. So the sea beast had his authority from the devil. I've mentioned that several times. John's very explicit about it. Now, there is a split of Preter's opinion over what this head that had been slain is, his fatal wound, and, and later became healed. The majority of Pretor's commentators say the healing refers to the Nero Redivivus myth. Now, what that myth was very famous in ancient history. The myth was this: after Nero was killed, a rumor began to spread that he would rise again and recapture the throne. This is not amongst Christians; this is amongst the Romans. Other Pretor's commentators say that the fatal wound was healed, the fatal wound was the year of four emperors when the Roman Empire was about to collapse, and Vespasian who ended up being a very good emperor. He came back, He, in fact, he he removed himself from the siege of Jerusalem at the end of the Jewish war, went back to Rome, and he restored order and basically kept the empire alive. Now, David Chilton commenting on this says that Nero Vivus cannot be what John was referring to, and I agree with him here. Why would John refer to a myth that hadn't arisen yet? Nobody had ever heard of Nero Vivus at the time. John was writing to the seven churches, the seven churches would say, oh, this is Nero Vivus. that's kind of tough if you've never heard of it before. And besides, it's using pagan fables rather than scripture to interpret scripture. So we're going to chunk that one. I don't believe that. If, if it is true that the majority of preterist commentators believe it, I believe they're wrong. And to be honest with you, preterists split on certain things, and this is one of them, and it's hard to say who's a majority and who's a minority. Now, Vespasian, to me, makes a lot of sense. You know, the Roman Empire was slain and then healed when Vespasian took it over. But let's look at Chilton's view. He says that this head that is struck is an allusion in the old test to a verse in the Old Testament, Genesis three fifteen, the famous proto evangelion evangelion, I should say. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the offspring of course is the Messiah, he will strike the head of the devil and the devil will strike the heel of Jesus by crucify him on the cross, but that didn't kill him. He came back to life. Now this is how Jesus bruised the devil's head. His kingdom came when he came. The devil had been defeated, disarmed, and bound on the cross. Within the first generation, the gospel had spread rapidly around the world. Churches had sprung up everywhere. Members of Caesar's own household had become Christians. Philippians 4:22. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. In fact. The Gospel had spread so much that the third Roman Emperor Tiberius formally requested that the Roman Senate officially acknowledge Christ's divinity. Now of course, that doesn't mean that Tiberius was a believer, he was just doing this for political reasons, but the point is he was doing it because there was Christians everywhere, and the Romans of course, always allowed pagan gods into their empire, let people worship their own pagan gods, and he say, "Well, Jesus is just another God. we'll let people worship him." But the point is there were so many Christians around that they were starting to get the empire's notice. And, of course, Christianity is totally opposed to the demonic Roman Empire. So, John, when John sees one of the heads of the Roman Empire, of the sea beast, as if it had been slain, which means the Roman Empire is going down under the onslaught of Christianity. But then, the Roman Empire's the sea beast fatal wound was healed, and the Roman Empire got going again with no trouble. Now, Chilton says this refers to the great apostasy, the so-called great apostasy that happened in the church right before... Eighty seventy. Before I get to how the beast head was healed, let me let me take you to the Old Testament again to show how the beast got knocked in the head, and it looked as in Revelation thirteen through here as if it had been slain. Daniel tells us this. Daniel two verse thirty four and thirty five. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue. Now this is the statue of the fourth, the statue that had iron and and clay, that was the Roman Empire. So this stone broke off, struck the statue, then the iron, the fire, clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered. Remember, the, the statue had all the empires in it, and then the, the feet were the Roman Empire. The stone hit the feet, and everything was shattered, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, and this is the spread of the kingdom of Christ. So it looked like the Roman Empire had been slain, clobbered, knocked in the head. But then the tables were turned, the beast's head was healed. This is when the pagan Roman Empire came back into strength and the Christians were wandering off into apostasy and defeat. Heresy and apostasy were spread everywhere. Here's what Chilton says, the New Testament gives the definite impression that most of the churches fell apart and abandoned the faith. Now, this was an idea when I first heard it that really struck me as novel. In fact, I had trouble believing it at first. But after you read these verses and realize it's talking about the first century, it's not talking about the end of the world, I'm going to read these New Testament verses to you and so you can get an idea of how screwed up the church was. You think the church is screwed up today? It was really screwed up, really much in trouble in the 50s and 60s. A D. So let's read first Timothy one three through seven. As I urged you, Paul's writing to, to Timothy, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. So in Ephesus, false doctrines. They those these promote empty speculations rather than God's plan. da, 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 da. I'll skip the rest of that. First Timothy one, nineteen through twenty, having faith and a good conscience, some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hominius and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may not be taught not to blaspheme. These blasphemies, these gangrenous shipwreckers of people's faith, were people that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, and that's not the end of the world, folks, that's in the later times of the, Jewish, of the pre-Messianic Jewish age, that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So here we have deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, lots of asceticism taking over the church. 1 Timothy six twenty 20-21 Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. Now we've got some proto-Gnostic heretics that Paul's trying to deal with by professing it. Some people have departed from the faith, so people are leaving the faith. Second Timothy two sixteen through eighteen. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godliness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. That's the same heresy in Ephesus. The neo the uh, the doctrine that the resurrection of the dead of the Christian dead was not going to take place. Or actually, they said it, it had already taken place, which means it is not going to take place in the future. Second Timothy 3, 1 through 9, But know this, hard times will come in the last days. Now, folks, this is not the last days before the end of the world. This is the last days of the Jewish rabbinic order, the pre-Messianic Jewish political system, the geopolitical Israel that existed back then in Timothy's time. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but deny, denying its power avoid these people for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelm my sins and led astray by a variety of passions always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth just as janice and jambres resisted moses so these also resist the truth They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all, as was the uh, foolishness of Janice and Jambres. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, of course, Hal Lindsey will tell us that's what's going to happen. That's our great and glorious future. No, that was where the church was, before Jesus delivered the church, when he judged Israel in AD 70. Second Timothy 4:10. Because Demas has deserted me, since he loved this present world, has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Ba 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 Second Timothy 4:14 4, through 16. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself, because he strongly opposed our words. In my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So Paul was having a hard time in the 60s. People are leaving the faith, he's in jail, he's getting tried by the Romans, and where are the Christians to help him out? He writes to Titus, chapter 1, verses 10-16, through for there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply, so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. They claim to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, disobedient and unfit for any good work. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies, dot, dot, dot. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and unto every good work, reprobate. 1 John two eighteen 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour of the last hour. Not talking about the end of the world, but talking about the last hour, the last times of the Old Testament Jewish geopolitical entity, the one that killed Jesus. Children, it is the last hour for the pre-Messianic period. The Messianic period is just getting started. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. even now many Antichrist have come. By this we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained uh, with us, etc. Okay, so if you put all the passages, relevant passages in the New Testament together, you can see that, man, this church had a hard, hard time with opposition. And so if Chilton is right, that means when the Roman Empire's head, one of the seven heads, which had been fatally wounded, was healed. That means just when it looked like the Christians were going to overtake the pagan empire, the pagans came back. Now we look at the end of verse 3 in Revelation 13 and verse 4, and the whole, and there's two ways to translate gay here, earth and land, and either way works in this particular instance. I'll take it the typical way the translations have it, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. That would refer to all the nations of the world that followed after the Roman Empire, one of the largest and most successful empires the world's ever seen. They were amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. Of course, the Roman Empire was totally pagan, totally demonic, including the people that were in the Roman Empire. They worshipped the beast. They worshipped those emperors, at least politically. Maybe not with their heart, but with their when they pinched the incense, you know, they they were saying, we know whose boss the Roman emperor is. And that makes sense. But there is another way that you can translate gay. You can translate that as land, which is very easy to show. Look in the lexicon. And so instead of the whole earth followed after the beast, we would read it the whole land followed after the beast. Now, this is a reasonable option, too, because Israel was guilty of emperor worship. Israel, the land of Israel, land, gay, land, followed after the beast. Israel did follow after the beast. Israel did worship the emperor, the Roman emperor. Faced with a choice between Christ and Caesar, they said in John 19.15, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And that was answering Pilate's question in John 19.15, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. In other words, they, had, they were looking at Jesus, and they had a choice, and they chose Caesar. They followed after the beast. They followed after the Roman beast, the sea beast. Alfred Edesheim, the fantastic uh, Jewish Christian who wrote in the late 1800s, in the life and times of Jesus and the Messiah, I read that book twice. You should read it. No Christian should live on this earth without reading that book. He says this, with this cry, we have no king but Caesar. With this cry, Judaism was, in the person of its representatives, guilty of denial of God, of blasphemy, of apostasy, committed suicide, followed after the beast. Remember, Jesus himself called their worship assembly synagogues of Satan. They followed after the Roman Empire, which was the representative of the beast on earth. Now, of those two options, I like the one translating gay as land. I can't prove it, of course. Either one works, but that sure sounds like Israel following after Rome and worshiping Rome and trying to kill Jesus. And then, of course, after Jesus was killed, they continued their unholy alliance with the Roman Empire as they As Paul spread his message through Asia Minor, through Anatolia, everywhere you read in the book of Acts, the Jews were after him, and the Romans were after him. In fact, a lot of times the Jews would turn the Christians over to the Roman authorities. We go now to verse 5 of Revelation 13, and we'll read 6 and 7 also. There was given to him, that means to the sea beast, there was given to the sea beast a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now once again we see the arrogant words and blasphemies just like he had a blasphemous name on his head. He's, the, devil, the sea beast is blaspheming God because the Roman Empire was totally a pagan empire. And not only was the sea beast blaspheming God, he blasphemed God's tabernacle. And John tells us in verse 6 that God's tabernacle is those who dwell in heaven, i.e., that's Christians, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He's blaspheming those too, saying nasty things against his church. Now, he did this for 42 months. Now, there's that three and a half year period, 42 months, 1260 days. It's mentioned all the way through the book of Revelation. Now, normally, a lot of times it refers to the three and a half years of the Jewish war, but here, I don't think so. I think it literally refers to the time that the sea beast persecuted the church, blaspheming the church. In verse 7, it was also given him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, to persecute the church. Who did that? Well, Nero did that. Again, Nero is the, the emperor, the king that is. He was the one that was in power when John was writing this book, and he persecuted the saints for 42 months. Well... Nero's persecution of the church was a full 42 months, as David Chilton points out, from the middle of November 64 to the beginning of June 68. Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible answer man, who's also an Orthodox preterist in his book, The Last Disciples, calls this period the Great Tribulation. I think he's wrong about that. I think the Great Tribulation is referring to what happened to Israel in the three and a half years of the Jewish war. But the point is, as he notes this three and a half years as a time of tribulation. It fits perfectly to me. Now, Chilton says you don't need to take it literally. It's 42 months is a broken seven, a time of sadness, despair, and judgment. Chilton, in my humble opinion, seems to be so gung-ho at avoiding the hyper-literal interpretation of the dispensationalist futurist that he, in my opinion, goes too far the other way and takes things that fit literally and make them symbolic. I mean, 42 months, that's the time when Nero started persecuting the church until the time he committed suicide, and boy, did he ever persecute the church. He overcame them. You know, the garden parties with Christians wrapped up in animal skins, lit on fire as Roman candles, blaming the Christians on the the great fire of Rome, organizing a a governmental persecution of the Christians. I think it fits pretty good. Now, in verse 7, it says that the sea beast, in, in, in my opinion, that's in the person of Nero, was given it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Now, tribe when you see tribe and tongue and people and nation, that's the Gentiles. That's easy. And so this is a perfect description of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had authority over many nations. It was a polyglot, multi-ethnic empire. And so the Seabees had authority over all those nations. So the church is trampled down, is being overcome for 42 months by this blaspheming sea beast, this blaspheming Roman Empire. But meanwhile, the Roman Empire has political authority over all the nations of the world. Now, this illustrates the situation the church is in so many times in its history with no political power, with no soft power, with no cultural power, despised, spit upon. I'm describing the church in America, of course. But hey, if we apply this to our present day, and I, I don't mean to interpret it by the present day, but just make an application. If in the first century it looked like the church was going to go down, in the 60s it didn't because God delivered it with one of the most incredible judgments in the history of the world when that, when the Romans wiped out Jerusalem. I mean, if you were living in Jerusalem in AD 65, you could not even imagine Jerusalem going down. We go now to Revelation Oh, let me make one more point before we go on. Notice that the sea beast overcame the overcomers. He says in verse 7, it was given to him to make war with with the saints and to overcome them. Well, yes, Nero killed Christians. But, you know, killing a Christian does not ultimately overcome him. A Christian will live forever. A Christian will rise again. And before he physically rises from the dust of the earth, his spirit will be with Jesus. And if you as a Christian have not grabbed a hold of that thought yet, then you're going to have a little bit of insecurity because you know as well as I do that as soon as the economy crashes and we don't have any food to eat, or as soon as your health fails and you end up dying, you're cooked unless you believe in the resurrection. Eternal life, as Jesus promised us. Revelation 13:8. All who dwell on the earth or dwell on the land will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Now again, how we interpret this verse depends on how we translate gay, all who dwell on the earth, or all who dwell on the land. Well, let's take land first as the first option. All who dwell on the land will worship him. This will be showing that apostate Israel is worshiping the Roman Empire. John 19:15. they, the Jews, shouted, Take him away, take Jesus away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. So that's when Edishim says they committed suicide. They worshipped the Roman Empire more than they worshipped Jesus who was right in front of them. Now that's assuming gay is land, but it could be all who dwell on the earth, not the land, will worship him. Well, that's true. All the Gentile nations did suck up the Rome pretty much. A lot of them had, the when there was emperor worship, those emperors who demanded worship as a civil political thing, but it was still religious worship. Most of the people in the Roman Empire went along with that. Not the Christians, but the pagans did. So either way, it fits. Revelation 13:9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Again, that just shows if you go understand the words of the Spirit, you've got to have a spiritual heart to understand the words that are generated by the Spirit. If you want to hear, you can hear. But if you don't want to hear, you can shut your ear and go off and perish with the rest of the world. Verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity... To captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Now, I don't like the NASB translation here. King James does it the same way as NASB, but the Homer Christian Study Bible and NIV have a different translation. Their translation says, If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword he will be killed. The NASB and the King James say, He that kills with a sword must be killed. So it's the difference between passive and active home christian study bible say if anyone is to be killed with a sword with a sword he will be killed the kgv and the NASB have it active he that kills with the sword must be killed with a sword well i think it's passive the Human christian study bible makes more sense because the christians here especially if you consider the context the christians are the ones being killed they're not killing anybody with a sword they're being killed with a sword with these persecution of the sea beasts that over quote unquote overcame them if you're overcome, you're not going to be killing anybody with a sword. So I think that's a pretty bad translation. I don't, I don't know what the Greek behind it is, but I'm sure it's ambiguous. But I think the answer is the way the NIV and the Homo Christian Study Bible has it. If anyone is to be killed by the sword, he will be killed. If anyone's, Because that fits along, fits right along with the first part of verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Now what does that mean? It means that, hey... Jesus never promised you a rose garden. Some Christians are going to be killed in persecutions. It's happened all throughout the history of the church. Nowhere does the scripture promise you that you will be delivered from the sword. And you think, well, that's pretty bad. Well, here's the answer to it in verse 10. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. you got to persevere and believe when all is going to hell. And I am not going to tell you that I've ever been in a situation where I was facing death. In fact, I think the the minority of Christians have ever been in that situation. But John is telling these Christians that are going to be persecuted by the Roman Empire, if you're going to be captive, you go to captive, but have perseverance and faith, you will be delivered. And even if you get killed, you will be raised. Now, that's one interpretation of verse 10. Let me give you another interpretation. Let's go back to the NASB translation, if anyone kills with a sword, not is killed with a sword, but if anyone kills with a sword, and if anyone is destined for captivity, let's take that as... Apostate Jerusalem. This is what Kilton does. Chilton does. I don't believe that because it's talking about the sea beast, it's not talking about the land beast. It's talking about the sea beast. But Chilton says, well, destined for captivity, that means apostate Jerusalem is destined for captivity, because John is quoting loosely from Jeremiah 15, verse 2, if they ask you where will we go, tell them, this is what the Lord says, those destined for death to death, those destined for the sword to the sword, those destined for famine to famine, those destined for captivity to captivity. That does sound like a pretty close quote. Jeremiah 14, 10 through 12 says this, this is what the Lord says concerning these people, the rebellious people of Israel. Truly, they love to wander. They never rest their feet. So the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of these people. If they fast, I will not hear their cry of despair. If they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. Rather, I will finish them off by sword famine and plagues. So well, Chilton says Jerusalem is about to be judged. No intercession is possible because Jeremiah says don't pray. This is Jerusalem in 586 BC is about to be judged. And of course, John is using that to refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070. Here's another example of why it's no use to pray for people destined for destruction. Jeremiah 15.1 Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel should stand before me, my compassion would not reach out to these people. Send them from my presence and let them go. Even Moses and Samuel couldn't save Israel. And so then we have, if anyone is destined for captivity, as apostate Israel is, to captivity he goes, i.e. in A.D. 70, if anyone kills with a sword, as the apostate Jews were doing, Jesus said they will chase you from synagogue to synagogue, and some of them they will kill. Jesus had promised that. And so if anyone does that, anybody in apostate Israel does that, well, you're going to get killed with destruction. Well, that fits pretty good. But the problem is, this is in the context of the sea beast, which is the Roman Empire, not apostate Jerusalem. So I think Chilton is off base there, in my humble opinion. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished with the sea beast, the Roman Empire beast. In our next audio, we will take up a discussion of the land beast, the beast representing apostate Israel. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you've enjoyed this one.